0: That was great. And uh, what's that guy? Oh, Gary and Brian, you did a good job too. Thanks. Uh, So as you probably figured out, we're not going to be in 1 Peter today. Last week, we finished chapter 3, and I was planning to start chapter 4 today, but then I realized two things. Uh, First, as Sean mentioned, I'm not going to be here next week, Uh, November 21st. Because along with my wife, Christina, my grandsons, David and Jonathan, and their parents, I'm flying to St. Louis to spend Thanksgiving with my granddaughter, Amelia, and her parents. And second, uh, again, as Sean mentioned, Advent begins on the following week, uh, November 28th. My plan for Advent is to do a special... uh, little mini-series in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. So if you want to read up on that, the series will be titled, Who is this Jesus? Side note, Advent, this time, these four weeks would be a great, uh, great time to invite any non-Christian friends you might have, people that might be interested in just learning what, what Christians believe, what the Bible says about who Jesus is. So, because we'll be taking a break from 1 Peter for Thanksgiving and Christmas, I didn't want to start chapter 4 today and just leave us hanging there. Therefore, today we're going to look at the passage Patty read for us from the book of Isaiah. In these verses, the prophet describes God's servant, who we recognize, who we know today is Jesus Christ. Now, I chose this passage because of its relevance to what we've been studying in 1 Peter, and to catalyze us as we move forward into Advent. Ooh, pretty good, huh? Let me explain. As we've seen, one of Peter's main topics in his letter uh, is suffering for righteousness sake. And his example of suffering is Jesus. In chapter 2, verse 21 of 1 Peter, he writes, for to this unjust suffering, he's just been talking about unjust suffering, you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. We're to follow in Christ's steps. He's our example of suffering for righteousness sake, of unjust suffering. And Isaiah predicts and describes Christ's suffering 700 years before it occurred. In fact, this passage has been titled, maybe you've heard, The Suffering Servant. But along with the description of his suffering, Isaiah also provides us with other truths about God's servant. So this passage gives us insight into our study of suffering for righteousness sake in 1 Peter and a foundation for our study of who Jesus is in Philippians chapter 2. That's why I chose to look at Isaiah 52:13 through 50 through 12 today. It's a key passage for understanding the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon called it the gospel in essence. Now, before we get to the actual passage, we need a little context. These verses were written, were meant to give hope to God's people living in exile. You see, Isaiah chapters 40 through 66, the end of the book, were written after the southern kingdom, Judah, was taken into captivity by Babylon. Judah had turned away from God and was worshiping the false gods of the surrounding nations. And God sent Babylon as a judgment, a punishment for their sins. But even while they suffered in exile, God showed them mercy through his prophet Isaiah. Isaiah prophesied that one day God will send his servant, the Messiah, to save them from their sins. So the children of Israel in exile... Read this prophecy looking uh, to the future with hope. But it's different for us, right? As we read it, it's different. Because even though as Christians, Peter has shown us that we are exiles in this world, we aren't the children of Israel. And most importantly, Isaiah's prophecy, prophecy has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus was born Jesus lived on this earth for 33 years. Jesus died on the cross and Jesus rose from the dead. And Jesus perfectly fulfills Isaiah's prophecy. Jesus is God's servant. So as we look at this prophecy, we're looking to the past. And we're looking over uh, 2,700 years into the past when it was written by Isaiah. And we're looking at over 2,000 years ago into the past when it was fulfilled by Jesus Christ. But don't think that just because we're looking into the past that we see no application uh, for our present and for our future. What Isaiah prophesies and what Jesus accomplishes is crucial for us today. And it's my prayer that, that what we see today would be used by God to transform us. By the the power of His Spirit, through His Word, our hearts and minds, our behavior will be transformed by His Word. That whether we entered this room uh, believing in Him, trusting in Christ, loving Jesus, or not, that when we see what He, what God's servant has accomplished for each one of us, that we would be overwhelmed by His love And in gratitude, we would commit in love for him to serve him with our very lives. So would you join me in prayer to that end? Father God, I pray that as we come to your word, as we look at this passage written oh so long ago, but so relevant today, that we would be amazed by that and we would be more amazed by the words it contains by what it teaches us about you, about the, the amazing, uh, wonderful things you've done for us, or that it would penetrate our hearts and cause us to turn to you in, in, in greater ways. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Okay, so we're going to see uh, 10 truths about God's servant all of which are fulfilled in Christ. Ten truths given by Isaiah, all of which are fulfilled in Christ, all of which are relevant for us today. And the first truth we see is he, God's servant, is a successful servant. I know we've already said that he's God's servant, but let's see it in the text. Isaiah 52, verse 13, God speaking through Isaiah says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. The subject of Isaiah's prophecy, as we move forward, is referred to by God as my servant. And the New Testament teaches us that Jesus was a servant. The Gospels give us examples of him serving his disciples, washing their feet, examples of him serving and submitting to the will of his Father, obeying him in everything he did. And ultimately, We have Jesus' own words in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. Jesus says He came to serve by giving His life. He serves with His life. His life becomes a a ransom, a, a redemption for many. We'll see this again in a few weeks when we, when we look at Philippians chapter 2, where Paul writes in verse 7, Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. That word form refers to his very nature. Who he was in his essence. Jesus became God's servant. Again, God says, behold, my servant shall act wisely. That phrase act wisely means to prosper or to have success. God says, uh, my servant will succeed in what he does. He will do the right thing. He will act in wisdom. Isn't it reassuring to know that 700 years before Jesus was born, God knew that that his mission of salvation would succeed. That Jesus would act wisely. That he would do the right thing 100% of the time. And that his mission of ransoming, redeeming many would be a success. Understand that Jesus has succeeded in opening the door of salvation, of bridging the gap, the huge gap between God and man. That anyone, you and I included, who trusts in the Lord can be saved because of Christ. Because God's servant, Jesus Christ, accomplished what he set out to do. He was and is successful. And because of his success, second truth, he's exalted in his divinity. Isaiah 52, 13 continues, "...he shall be high and lifted up, and shall be exalted." This is similar to what Isaiah in his vision wrote in chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. There's a correlation between Isaiah's vision of God in chapter 6 and God's servant in chapters 52 and 53. Both are high and lifted up, both are exalted, both are divine. God's servant is divine, he is God himself. And the New Testament, in the New Testament, Jesus Christ is also presented as divine. The Apostle John begins his gospel with these words In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we know he's talking about Jesus because in verse 14 he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word, God Himself, became flesh and He dwelt among us. And again in Philippians chapter 2 the Apostle Paul writes about what Jesus accomplished by coming to earth, taking on the form of the servant, and going to the cross. And then in verse 9 he says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Because of Jesus' success in providing salvation to all who believe, he is highly exalted And therefore, we should exalt, we should worship, we should praise Him corporately and individually for saving us. God's servant, Jesus Christ, is exalted in His divinity. But, truth three, He's scarred in His humanity. There's a dichotomy here. It's quite quite a, a contrast. It's If you read it, you might be very confused. I mean, if you're coming, if you don't know about Jesus, if you're coming at this and going, what is this? He's exalted. And then we read, he's divine, he's exalted. But then in verse 14, right after he says, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. The servant's appearance astonishes many. He is physically disfigured, he's marred, he's scarred beyond human recognition. This speaks to the servant's humanity. Gods are not scarred, but men are. Again, the Apostle Paul in Philippians says that Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus was and always will be God, but there came a time in history when he took the form of a servant. He was born in the likeness of men. He became one of us. He became Emmanuel, God with us. He became a human being, and he was physically scarred in his humanity. The gospel tells us that prior to going to the cross, Jesus was beaten and flogged. He was slapped and hit in the face over and over. He was spit upon. His beard was torn, torn, pulled out. If you've seen the movie, The Passion of the Christ, this is probably a pretty accurate portrayal of, G, of what Jesus suffered and how he was scarred. He was a bloody mess. God's servant, Jesus Christ, was scarred in his humanity. And never forget, he was scarred for you and for me. He was scarred in his humanity for humanity. Because through his scars, verse 4, truth 4, excuse me, says, he redeems the nations. He's marred. He's disfigured. He's suffering. He's bleeding. His blood is flowing. Then verse 15 says, so shall he sprinkle many nations. These words relate to the, the Old Testament sacrificial system. The blood of a sacrificed animal will be sprinkled on the altar or sometimes even on the people. This picture that the sacrifice died shed its blood for another. It died to pay for the sins, to save, to redeem another. But all those animal sacrifices were were mere symbols. They were shadows of what was to come. Isaiah is saying that the blood of God's servant will be sprinkled over the nations. For it's by the servant's blood, not the blood of bulls and goats, that the nations will be redeemed. Verse 15 continues, Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Kings will be silent when they understand the servant's sacrifice for them. Kings are a reference to the Gentile nations who didn't have the prophecy, who didn't have the Old Testament. God's servant would not die for Israel alone, but for the nations, for the Gentiles as well. And the New Testament teaches that Jesus shed his blood to redeem the nations. The first thing John the Baptist, a prophet himself, said when he saw Jesus was, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Lambs were sacrificial animals who shed their blood to symbolically cover sins. But Jesus is the Lamb of God who sheds His blood and who will take away the sin of the world. God's servant, Jesus, redeems the nations. And truth five, He reveals the Lord. Again, this speaks to His divinity. Isaiah asks a couple questions. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 1 who has delivered, excuse me, who has believed what he has heard from us? Do you believe what you're hearing? Do you believe that God's servant will redeem the nations? And to whom has uh, the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who's seen the arm of the Lord? The arm of the Lord refers to God's power and his strength. Isaiah is saying that the power of the Lord, God's power is revealed in God's servant. When you see God's servant, we see God. And that's what Jesus says about himself. The disciple, his disciple Philip, asked him uh, to show him the Father. I want to see the Father. And and in John chapter 14 verse 9, Jesus says, Have I been with you so long that you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. They're one and the same. Jesus came to save, but He also came to reveal, to show who God is. The Apostle Paul says about Jesus that, For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. God's servant, Jesus Christ, is God. Therefore, He reveals the Lord. But, true sixth, He's rejected by men. Isaiah 53, 2. This again speaks to the servant's humanity. For He grew up before Him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form of majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. So the servant grows like a, is compared like a a young plant. He's born and develops like any human being. He's like a root out of the dry ground. He comes from a humble place. He's not majestic to look at. He has no outward beauty that we should desire him. The feeling is that, that to look at him, you, you wouldn't see anything special externally. Now, we know that Jesus was born into the world and grew like any human being. Luke chapter 2, verse 52 says, Jesus increased. He grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus was without sin, but he grew in wisdom and stature. He grew intellectually and physically. Jesus was also born into humble circumstances. He was born into and grew up in a poor family. Now, the Bible doesn't contain any physical description of Jesus. But we know he was probably a typical looking Jewish man. Nothing special to look at. No flowing light brown hair. No piercing blue eyes. No beauty that we should desire him. Do you see the picture? The servant is not physically attractive. When he walks down the street, the people don't notice his beauty. But instead, the servant comes revealing who God is. Living for God. Obeying God. Doing what God would do. Saying what God would say. Loving like God would love. And what happens? 53.3 we read, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. He's despised, hated, rejected. People hide their faces from him. We esteem him not. Why? Well, I think because in reality, people, we, don't want God in our lives. We want to do what we want to do. And frankly, we think God cramps our style. God calls us to something high and holy. But we don't want to change. We want to remain in the filth of this world. So we reject God, and we reject God's servant who reveals God. And that's what Jesus experienced. The Apostle John writes, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. The servant, Jesus, is revealing the Lord but he's rejected by men. And because of man's rejection, Isaiah says, the servant is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. On several occasions, we read of Jesus' sorrow. Luke writes, And when he drew near the, and saw the city, he wept over it. Jesus wept over the sin and the unbelief of the people. Jesus wept, get this, not because he was rejected by men, Jesus wept for the men and women who rejected him. Now you, Christian, might be thinking, but I didn't reject him. I believe in him. I trust in him. And that's true. And because of that, you've been declared righteous by God. Uh, Amen? But don't you know, don't we know that every time you fail to act righteously, every time you sin, you are in that moment rejecting him. When we do what we want to do, instead of what he wants us to do, we're rejecting him. We, even though uh, we we claim to love him, even though we, we have been declared righteous, we continue to reject him by our sinful actions. God's servant, Jesus, was rejected by men and women, by you and by me. But that didn't stop him from dying in our place. True seven, he's sacrificed for our sin. Check this out. He's sacrificed for those who reject him. Isaiah 53, four, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet, he, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. The servant takes on our griefs, He carries our sorrows. Griefs and sorrows are the consequences of sin. And the servant bears them. He carries them himself. He removes them from us and takes them on himself. He takes our pain and sorrow, our sin, and he suffers the consequences. He's stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. He takes our deserved punishment upon himself Verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. It was our transgressions, our iniquities, that caused the servant to be pierced and crushed and wounded. It was for our sin that God's servant is chastised and punished. We need to understand just how much... God hates sin. And this uh, among, I think this passage uh, can give us that understanding. God's holy wrath will be poured out on all who sin. And all have sinned. Verse 6 makes that clear. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. We like sheep go astray. We like sheep are not very bright. We reject and we wander away from the Lord. We turn to our own sinful ways. And without God's servant, we would be lost. We would be destroyed forever. But because of God's servant, we can be saved. How? Into verse 6. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We need to know in the depths of our soul that without God's servant, every person Every person here, every person, anytime, anywhere would experience the divine wrath of God. That every person would be stricken and smitten and afflicted by God. Every person would be crushed and chastised and wounded because of their own sin. It's only because of God's servant that we can escape his holy wrath. God's servant takes our place. He becomes our sacrifice. And the Lord lays upon the servant our iniquity. Our sin is transferred from us to the servant. And this is perfectly fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus on the cross became our perfect sacrifice. The Apostle John writes this about Jesus. He is the propitiation for our sins. There's another uh, vocab word. Use that in a sentence. It means, propitiation means to appease, to atone for, to pay for, to be the sacrifice. Jesus appeased God's wrath. Jesus was stricken and smitten by God instead of you and me. The Apostle Paul writes this about Jesus in Romans 3.25. God put, put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Through His blood, through the blood of Christ... Those who receive Him by faith are saved. We're saved from the wrath of God. Our sins are placed upon Jesus, and He is sacrificed in our place. And don't forget, He does all of this for a people who are rejecting Him. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 5.10, When we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Jesus suffers unjustly and dies not for his friends, but for his enemies. He reconciles those who are rejecting and rebelling against him. God's servant, Jesus, is sacrificed for our sins. And truth eight, he suffers in silence. Isaiah 53, 7 and 8, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. The servant will be oppressed, afflicted, and judged. He will, but he will not protest. He will not open his mouth. He will willingly take the punishment, suffer, not for his sins, but for the sins of others. And he will be cut off from the land of the living. He will be killed, again, not for his sins, but for the sins of others. The New Testament teaches that during Jesus' trials, prior to his crucifixion, he remained silent. Matthew 26, 63 says, Before the high priest, Jesus remained silent. And, and, and later, during his trial before Pilate, we read, But he gave him no answer, not, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Jesus didn't defend himself. He willingly went to the cross. God's servant, Jesus, suffered in silence. And this becomes all the more uh, profound when we understand that he could have cried out. He could have defended himself he could have rightly said, I am innocent. I've done nothing wrong. You've got the wrong man. Because truth nine, he's the sinless sacrifice. Verse nine of Isaiah chapter 53, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. He died and was buried with the wicked Even though he had done nothing wrong, no violence, no deceit, no sin in God's servant. And yet he was buried with the wicked, with a rich man in death. The Gospels tell us that Jesus was buried in the tomb of a wealthy man, Joseph of Arimathea. But more importantly, when he died, there was no deceit in his mouth. He lived a sinless life and therefore was able to be a perfect sacrifice. The Apostle John wrote, You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. And Paul wrote, For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus knew no sin. There was no sin in him, and therefore he's able to become that perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He takes away our sin. He was made sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God's servant Jesus was sinless; was a sinless sacrifice, and in becoming our sacrifice, truth ten, he satisfies God's justice. Isaiah fifty three ten, yet it, shall, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He was put; he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offering. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Literally, the desire of the Lord, the delight of the Lord, the pleasure of the Lord to crush him. He, God himself, has put him to grief. His sacrifice is the will of the Lord and shall prosper in his hand. What happens to God's servant was not a mistake. It wasn't some human plot. It was a divine strategy. The servant was God's was God's servant, not man's servant. Verse eleven says, "Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall be see and be satisfied." The crushing of the servant causes the anguish of his God's soul but it also satisfies. What does it satisfy? And why does God uh, find delight, satisfaction in crushing this serpent? It satisfies God's justice. God is infinitely holy. He's called holy, holy, holy. He's infinitely set apart. He's infinitely pure. He's infinitely sacred and good and glorious. He is right and perfect in every way. So He's perfect in His justice, which means sin must be punished. Sin causes the wrath of a just and good and holy God. So it's not possible for God to say about the sin in our lives, Oh, no big deal. I'll overlook that. That would violate the very nature of who God is. It would violate his holiness. It would violate his purity. It would violate his justice. God cannot throw his justice out the window. Because if he did, he would no longer be God. He would be less. So then the question is, how can God be infinitely just and holy and good and still save sinners? And the only answer is by crushing his servant. Because by crushing his servant, God displays the full extent of his justice. God will not, cannot act as though sin is no big deal and still be God. We need to get this. We need to know deep in our hearts just how serious our sins are. They're not errors. They're not mistakes or boo-boos. They're rebellion against a holy, just God. They're saying, I know better than you. I know better than the infinitely pure, right, good God. And I'm going to do what I want to do instead of what you want me to do. And God takes our sin, our rebellion against Him, seriously. Look at what happens to a servant because of sin, because of your sin, because of my sin. He's marred, he's despised. He's rejected, he's stricken, he's smitten, he's afflicted, he's wounded, he's chastised, he's crushed by God. Not by man, but by God. God's crushing of his servant demonstrates the full extent of his justice. And crushing his servant satisfies his justice. And his satisfaction allows sinners to be saved. Verse 11 continues, God makes many to be counted, accounted for as righteous. How? By allowing the servant to bear their iniquities. This is the heart of the gospel. The good news. That Jesus Christ, on that cross, bore your sin and mine. And the amazing thing, the thing that we know But don't often allow to impact our hearts. The amazing thing is that the one God crushes, the one who satisfies his justice, is not just anyone. It's his one and only son. The Apostle Peter, in his first sermon, makes it clear, Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Jesus was crushed. Jesus was delivered up uh, to the cross, to his death, by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It was God's will. It was God's delight that Jesus be crushed Crucified for our sins. In his book, The Murder of Jesus, Dr. John MacArthur writes, The crucifixion of Christ was the greatest act of divine justice ever carried out. It was done in full accord with the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. God's servant, Jesus Christ, satisfies God's justice. Amen? And so the question is, what will you do with God's servant? What will you do with Jesus Christ? From Isaiah's, prof- for, from Isaiah's prophecy to its fulfillment in Jesus, we've, we've been given a, a very clear, I believe, picture of who Christ is, of what Christ has done. We've seen who he is, how he suffered and died on our behalf. Let me just summarize and personalize for those who might have been uh, napping. Jesus is God's successful servant. He fully and rightly and successfully served his Father that you might be saved. Jesus is exalted in his divinity. Never forget that the one who humbled himself and came to this earth and died in your place was and is God the Son. Jesus is scarred in his humanity. For you to become a man, excuse me, for, for you, he became a man and was scarred beyond human recognition. Jesus redeems the nations. He, he provides the nations with redemption, with salvation. And never forget, you're part of the nations. Jesus redeems you. Jesus reveals the Lord. In his life and death and resurrection, you can see the nature of God himself. He makes it possible for you to see and to know God. Jesus is rejected by men. He came knowing that those uh, he came to save you and me would reject him and would despise him. Jesus is sacrificed for sin. He went to the cross and he died in your place. He paid for your sin. Jesus suffers in silence. He could have protested. He could have defended himself, but he willingly suffered for you. Jesus is the sinless sacrifice. He knew no sin, but he took on your sin that you might be saved. And finally, Jesus satisfies God's justice. The wrath of God should Rightly, justly be poured out on you. You should be crushed for your own sin. But Jesus took your place. Jesus took your punishment. Jesus satisfied the holiness and the justice of God so that you can now enter into relationship with Him. And the question is will you enter into relationship with Him? He's provided, He's done everything necessary. Now, most of us have taken that initial step of faith in Christ. Most of us who come to church have done that. If you haven't, I'd I'd be happy to talk with you about, about how to accomplish that. But most of us have trusted in Christ to bring us into relationship with God. But the question is, will we, will you continue to daily walk with Him? Will you daily turn from your sin and turn to Jesus Christ? Will you daily be overwhelmed by who He is and what He's accomplished for you? Will you daily love Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Will you daily allow Him to enter into your life and transform who you are? Will you daily give Him everything He deserves? For He's worthy of your life, your time, your money, your family, your ambitions, your job, your hobbies, your desires, your hopes, your dreams. We must daily lay them all at His feet. We must daily allow Him to lead us into every area of our life, for He's worthy of it all. He, God's servant, willingly gave Himself for you, and now I ask for your good and for God's glory for you to give yourself to him. So would you join me in prayer for the power and for the desire to daily give God's servant, Jesus Christ, what he deserves. Father God, we acknowledge your greatness, your glory, your holiness. We acknowledge your purity. And we thank you for your grace and your mercy and your love for us. We thank you for Jesus, for sending him into our world to be our propitiation, to to be that sacrifice, to satisfy the justice, to take the wrath of God that we deserve, Father. And I pray... That as we meditate on these things, as we think about these things, as we allow these truths to penetrate our heart, they would change who we are. And we would be willing to serve you, to follow after you, to take up our cross and follow you daily. Because you gave everything for us. Pray for the strength and the power and the desire to give everything to you in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you as you're dismissed and I'll see you in two weeks as we begin Advent together.